right, Genesis chapter 2, this is uh, part 2 from last week's message, which was entitled Christ and His Body. We had mentioned concerning the title that His Body has a double meaning, and this is just for my title, I'm not talking about it in the, in the text or anything, but uh, His Body referring to His own body, physically, and His church body, and that's what we're going to stress today is uh, the church coming out of Christ, coming from Christ. Genesis chapter 2, this is the same thing we, we read last week, starting in verse, uh, read a little bit less this week, starting in verse 15. And Jehovah God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Jehovah God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Jehovah said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground Jehovah formed every animal of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. But there was not found a suitable helper for Adam. And Jehovah God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh underneath. And Jehovah God made the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman and he brought her to the man and Adam said this is now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh and they were both naked the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. All right, we read our text there in uh, Genesis chapter 2, and this is part 2 of last week's message. Last week we had a competition with a cricket, and I'm still editing that message, but uh, those that heard it live seem to notice, so I don't hear it yet, so I think it's uh, somebody prayed for its death, I guess. But last week we started this uh Thought it would get done last week, but it was a message called Christ and His Body. Wanting to see Christ in His church out of this text that we had just read in Genesis chapter 2, where God gave Adam a wife, Eve. He said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And uh, they were both naked and not ashamed. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. We did two points. One of the points was the church was taken out from Christ or out of Christ. The church came out of Christ. Christ being the head, the one forming the church, being the foundation of the church. We looked at uh, Ephesians 5. If you want to turn there, we'll look at that again to refresh us. You know everybody wasn't here last week, and maybe uh, everybody didn't hear the other message on Sermon on IO or Facebook Live, But and uh, we'll read a little less than we did last week. Verse 25. What we want to do is see the type that comes out of what we had just read in our text in Genesis. 
about Adam and Eve, Christ and his church, and a husband and wife. We've got three things going on there at once. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We know what that took. It took the sacrifice of death. That's how far the love for Christ went to his church. So the husband's standard of loving the wife is pretty high. There's some things about the wife before this verse we looked at last week, but our concentration is on the husband loving the wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So that's the result of the death of Christ. The effectual death of Christ results in what was just said. God's people will be presented with a perfect righteousness, a holiness that does not fluctuate. And this is all due not to anything we do, not that we gain or maintain anything, but it is because of the death of Christ. Verse 28, so men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man has ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord loves the church. For we are members of his body. Now this gets into the title of the message, Christ and his body. We're members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. So you see a connection to the text back in Genesis there. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And also let every one of you, in particular, so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife respects her husband. So that was the first point last week. We gave some commentary on all that. We're not going to go back and re-teach that. The second point was leaving our former death for life in Christ. In our text in Genesis... It says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. We started talking about last week that God's people, they change families and they change names when God saves them. We know that the church is called the same thing that Christ is. Christ's name is the Lord our righteousness. The church takes on that name just like a bride takes on the name of the husband. So Christ being the head of the church, he is our righteousness. And when God looks at the church or the believing justified elect, when he looks at them, he sees the righteousness of Christ because he is the imputer of that righteousness to them. And now they have a new name, same as the name of Christ. They're in the family of God. We went to Romans 8.15. I'll read that real quick. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, 
Abba, Father. So we are not in the family of Satan, who's, remember Christ talking to the, uh, I think it was John 8, talking to the religious people, and they said, were you talking to us about this? We're of our father Abraham. He says, no, you have your father, the devil. So we're, we're not in that family. We are in, we have been adopted into the family of God because of the love of God, the election of God, the predestination of God, and the death of Christ secured our salvation and brought us into that family. Of course, the spirit, as it mentions here in this verse that I just read, bears witness with our spirit and gives us life so that we may see Christ, see him as the head of the church, him having preeminence, him being our righteousness. We're in a completely different family and have a different name. So that's where we left off last week. I want to talk just a bit about this idea of leaving mother and father to cleave unto a wife. And that is, that is what people do when they get married. They separate from their family that they were raised from and they go to be with a husband. Uh, when you look at it, when the wife's concerned. And the church, of course, is the bride of Christ. And the church is, is taken away from the enemy. We're out, we come out from under the authority and the status or the state of Adam and we are transferred over under the authority of God in reference to our new state. We have a new status, we have a new name, we have a new family. Our legal status has changed. And that's what usually we spotlight in the gospel concerning uh, salvation is that our legal status has changed. So we come out of Adam. Everyone is in the first Adam. Adam represented the whole human race. And when he ate of that fruit, God said, the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And later on in the New Testament, we see that commentary that Paul gave that Adam was the federal representative of the whole world. When he ate of that fruit, the whole world legally was considered having ate in the representative of Adam. So we're all that guilt was transferred to the whole human race. People are born under that representative, legally condemned in need of justification. They're born as a result of that. The fruit that came out of that is spiritual death. They're in need of the new birth so that they may see who Christ is and come to him by faith. So because of what God has done, as I said earlier, he set his affection on his people. He elected them. And he predestined every single one of them to be saved in Christ. And the whole sacrifice of Christ is the foundation of that. And seeing that, we experience this by faith, transferring over to a new family, having that spirit of adoption, having eyes to see, having the new birth take place. We see and experience it by faith that this is what had happened. What God did in eternity, what Christ has done in time and his sacrifice. And then, of course, the work of the Spirit in us is the one that wakens us up and alivens us to these truths that we had no clue before. Actually, for the most part, resisted them until we were made willing by God to see them. So our text here, it mentions that those who are getting married are to leave their parents in order to do that. Besides our position of our previous father, Adam, when it speaks of marriage, there's a separation from the earthly parents to be part of the 
different household in a literal sense. So you've got two things we're looking at. We're leaving Adam. Our status has changed. We've kind of covered some of that. We'll probably look at some more of that today. But then when you look at the earthly part, there's that practical part where a person comes out of the literal house of their parents and they start a new household. People, most people living with their parents early on are taught by their parents, not just everything, but in reference to this message we want to look at, the spiritual things that people are taught by their parents. If you ask most people, depending on, I don't know how many people anybody's ever talked to about the gospel, about the Bible, about Christ, about grace, these different things. When you start talking about that, it's usually somebody will volunteer what their background is. If they don't, I usually ask them, you know, what is your religious background? What were you raised in? It kind of gives you an idea to know how to deal with that person. If you kind of have a general idea about what all denominations teach, it's beneficial to know that. And you'll see pretty quick, most people, not all, but most people, they'll just repeat some ideas that their mom and dad taught them or their grandma and grandpa taught them. They usually can't really explain what they believe or prove what they believe. They just look back to, well, I've been indoctrinated by my parents in this form of religion. And, of course, mom and dad love me, so they, they wouldn't lie to me, you know. Just because they lied about Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy doesn't mean they're going to lie to me about God, right? <laughs> but you'll soon find out that people, they really don't have a grasp on what they say they believe. They can't explain it. They can't defend it. And um, so as you, as you weed through that and you get to the authority of Scripture, which should be really part of the conversation early on, talking to people. Do you, you say you believe what your parents believe, but you do you believe what the scripture says about these issues? And this is something I think in everybody's life they have to kind of examine, well, where did I get my information from? Uh, I don't want to lean on anything else but what the word of God says. That's the safe place to be. Me, for example, I was raised in a, an Armenian Baptist church that, that taught free will, that God loved everybody, Christ died for everybody, and God was trying to save everybody. I was raised in that from the first week I was born. And then as time went on, there was a change of pastors, and the guy started teaching, at least on paper, he taught some aspects of sovereign grace. But he didn't really make much distinction there in reference to connection with the gospel. He had talked about how he had um, friends that he fellowshiped with that were pastors that were from other denominations that were Armenian, clearly Armenian. And um, so he made no distinction there. Also, when it came to repentance, you know, I heard the typical messages about repentance, which just were just from a legal aspect, you know, it was just repenting it implied a fear of punishment because of the law, you know, you got to change your ways, quote-unquote. And, you know, people that are just merely religious a lot of times, they go through periods of times where they try to change their ways. They try to turn over a new leaf. You know, they sort of like a New Year's resolution that doesn't last. They'll go through periods in their life where something will happen to them. They'll, they'll get scared. They'll get sick. Uh, we sometimes call that foxhole religion, where 
you make a profession out of fear. Uh, I made a couple out of fear. I watched a movie, an es eschatology movie called A Thief in the Night. I watched it and it was about what people went through in the tribulation period. It scared me. I went down front, I repeated prayer, and I thought, you know, I'm okay. I remember my mom saying that night when she didn't believe the gospel back then in the 70s, do you feel better now? Yeah, it's, it's all about feelings, of course. And uh, I didn't feel any different at all. I just remember, I thought I had to go through that thing they told me to go through. And then, you know, later on, I made a couple other false professions. And one was under this pastor I had mentioned that on paper, he was sovereign grace. He preached a message on repentance. And I thought it pretty much said, you got to stop sinning. I thought, well, I'm still sinning, so I must have not been saved in the first place. So I went down front again and did my thing and uh, thought I had repented. It wasn't until later I, I heard the gospel in a clear, concise way, and there were several aspects that I had not been taught before, and especially in reference to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, how that an effectual atonement is connected to the righteousness that Christ established that would be imputed to the, the believer. And it wasn't until God opened my eyes to that, which I'm glad I wasn't in a church building, I was driving in my car. Within that instance, I was given repentance. It came clear to my head that I repented of the aisle walkings and any other strivings I did to try to recommend myself to God. Several things I had in my head that I was trying to do because I had a view of the atonement that didn't do enough by itself. It was not sufficient, so I had to make up the difference by doing several different things. So I had left the religion of my parents and later on I don't know how many years later but my parents left their own religion and started attending churches that I was involved with so we need to kind of like maybe go back to our foundation and, and uh, don't be afraid to think about these things in our minds about what is a what is what are the things that make up all the things that I hold to and like can I go to the scripture and back them up or I would just believe in mom dad grandma grandpa or some wise old man next door, whoever, or some TV preacher. What am I counting on? What is what is the ground of my knowledge? Can I justify what I believe by the scripture rather than just some idea I'm holding to that's been repeated to me? It's pretty important. So I, I, what I'm getting at, I think what happens is we either are going to have the props knocked out from under us or it's going to strengthen our foundation when we go back and we see, yes, what I do hold to actually comes from the scripture. And if there's something different, we need to make adjustments. We ought not be afraid to do that. Why, why when it comes to something as important as your eternal salvation, you're going to lift up the carpet and just sweep it under the carpet and say, I don't want to look at that. You know, it's like, uh, you know, if a person is sick, they have cancer or something and they hear the bad news they're just going to say I, I can't deal with that so I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear it you have to look at that thing head on and deal with it as soon as possible that's just cancer this is we're talking about salvation here you have to look at what you think is are the scariest things the scariest questions you've got to look them head on and deal with them it's that important turn to Matthew chapter 10 and there's some verses here concerning salvation and, and relatives while you're turning there Matthew 10 
over the years, people have asked me about my relatives, whether it be my parents or my kids or anyone else that I'm connected to family-wise. And they would ask me about what they believe. And they would challenge me on it like they expected me to adjust my theology to let some of my family slide. We can't do that. First of all, we need to look at our doctrine and our theology, our gospel first concerning ourselves. We've always talked about here that we are to judge by the gospel, starting with ourselves. And we look at that up against judging by the law. Scripture forbids judging by the law because when you judge by the law, you condemn yourself, Romans 2. So we can't let ourselves, first of all, slide and go back and grab a false gospel and say, I'm counting myself saved back there under a false gospel. Therefore, when I do that, I can count all the other people I care for saved under false gospel that are still under a false gospel. And we know this is very dishonoring to God's character, to his gospel, to the truth itself, because a false gospel is not the truth. We know there's only one gospel that's the power of God and the salvation. If you look back at either your own self or your family's beliefs in another gospel, when you say, I was saved, or yes, they, they were saved under another gospel, what you're saying is there's no difference in a true gospel and a false gospel. If you, for example, if you go up to somebody and you're talking, you haven't seen them in 15 years, and you've since switched gods, changed gospels, you've repented of your false gospel, and this guy you haven't seen forever, you know that he's in false religion still, and he calls you brother, and he's expecting you to enter in on that. He's wanting you, he's wanting some type of religious fellowship. He's wanting you to speak peace to him in reference to his standing before God. And if you do that, it says in Second uh, John, I believe it's verse 9, 10, somewhere around there, that if you do that, you are partaker of his evil deeds with him because he is not embracing the doctrine of Christ. Now, it, it, it takes a conversation. You just don't, you're not like quick draw McGraw and you just start going around judging people and shooting them down. I mean, you have to have civil conversation, have patience and and um, it's not necessarily your job to think, okay, I'm going out today and I'm going to announce to all my old friends that they're lost. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. Our job is to preach the truth. And if the truth of the gospel offends, you're thinking, okay, uh, there's a red flag right there. Let me, let me ask you some questions. And you ask these questions clearly, patiently. And again, it's not our job to... Um, we don't have to look them in the eye and say, you're lost. We don't have to announce that condemnation. If we have a clear message, the message will announce that to them. I had a guy this past week on Facebook ask me if I thought he was saved. That's kind of rare for that to happen because usually the message, I'm thinking, well, you haven't read any of my stuff ever on Facebook, I guess. So I explained in detail. I took a lot of time with him and pretty much said, I don't think you're a believer. He was counting himself saved in false religion. He was counting all his friends in false religion saved. And I went the extra mile to explain. If you shake somebody's hand and call them brother, that means you believe their gospel. You can't get away from that. If I go up to the Pope and say, brother Pope, 
what I'm saying is, I've got the same gospel as the Pope, because there's only one. Or I'm saying, I have the same father as you. I've been adopted, you've been adopted, we're in the same family. Where we know what Rome says. Rome says that our view of the gospel is anathema, or a curse, or damnation. So we don't live in an Alice in Wonderland atmosphere where up is down and bitter is sweet. This is it's no way to communicate. So you get the idea. We cannot let our ourselves, first of all, slide into a, having a false gospel be a legitimate gospel. That shows clearly that we have not repented from our former false religion if we do that. Look at uh, Matthew 10, verse 32. Then everyone who shall confess me before men, I will confess them before my Father which is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I do not come to send peace, but a sword. Now, first of all, this that line is, is so foreign to the religious world. And even people that have never read the Bible because of this uh, sissy Jesus that they're used to hearing about and seeing the long-haired, pale, blue-eyed guy that's begging, that's knocking on the door that doesn't have a handle on his side, right? He's weak. He is a representation of another Christ that's not in the Scripture. I use different phrases, a variety of phrases for that guy. I've heard some of my friends sarcastically call him Wild Bill Hickok, Willie Nelson. I just call him the weasel god. He's a false Christ. Scripture talks about a false Christ. And I have been given the grace to be separated from that Christ. To not love him anymore like I did when I was deceived. Verse 35, I have come to set, here's where it gets personal, a man against his father. Now, here's where I'm connecting this with our text. A man shall leave his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife and they shall be one flesh. So here, the gospel comes into a family and household, and there are just some examples given here, and it's not always the same people in the family that are against each other. Sometimes, perhaps, maybe a, a father of a child is already a gospel believer. Maybe the father taught the child the gospel. This could go in so many different ways, but there are specific examples given here that tries to cover different areas here. Set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes, or enemies, shall be of their own household. Now here's what I want to see that I don't think that's talked about much in, in the right way. He who loves his, verse 37, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life shall lose it. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now back up there in um, verse 37. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
and son and daughter. And you could give different examples. You could talk about relatives. You could even add co-worker. You can, you can add anybody in here. It doesn't matter. But they're getting personal with a household. Now, I don't think this is just talking about a lot of people will take this. Preachers maybe will want to beat up their church members on church attendance and say, you know, you're going to a family reunion. Now come to this verse and beat people up with it. Instead of church, you went to a family reunion. You're not worthy of Christ. This, that's not what that's talking about. There is, uh, in America and all of the world, there is a bunch of family idolatry that does distract and all kind of other idolatry that distracts one's own person from God. All kinds. I mean, we, we could do a thousand part series on it. This, of course, implies some of that, but I want to get back to the idea of what we were talking about earlier in reference to the gospel. If I am to look at my parents or my kids and adjust my gospel to make it a not offensive gospel, get rid of all the particulars and distinctions of it and make it a generic ecumenical gospel. You, you just use the word Jesus, you know, and you're in. What am I doing? I'm loving them more than God. That's what this is, I think, getting at. And then it gets a little bit uh, down, down to verse 40, the last verse we looked at there. I'd like to do a whole message on this. There's there's some other things in, I believe, First John, if I remember right, that are directly connected to this. He who receives you receives me. This is getting even kind of closer to what I'm talking about. Christ has his gospel. He's the one who performed it. It was created by God, of course. And the work that he did was particular, and the gospel spells out that work. When we embrace him and his work, we're with him. We, we came out of him. We came from him. And he's a part of us. We are together in union now. And when we do that, we have come away from something else. And as we preach now this gospel that we know from him and by him, we preach that gospel. The only ones that are going to receive us the ones that have received him. There are these very sharp, stark, distinct lines here that have been drawn in the sand by God when it comes to truth and a lie, to a false gospel and a true gospel. So when I preach the gospel, I expect only the elect to agree with my gospel and for the non-elect to reject it. Now, some of the elect might rejected before they're converted. They will believe it. God will cause them to believe it. <clears throat> so if uh, there's a some church out there, say there's a there's all kind of local churches around here, places that call themselves churches. Some of the over the years have come out of them. If we preach a distinct gospel and they see that it's up against theirs, they're not going to receive us. They're not going to receive us into mutual fellowship, they won't have it. They won't have it at all. Now, in order for us to get them to, what do we have to do? Get in there, get under the hood, and tinker with our gospel. Trim it down, smooth it down, take out the offensive truths. Everything that you take out that's offensive that would make us fellowship with them are the vital parts of the gospel. No doubt about it. The worst things in their mind are the most vital, distinct parts of the gospel. They don't want to hear that. It's just like 
Paul when he went to the churches of Galatia there, and he was talking about uh, the offense of the cross, about um, the false brethren, false prophets brought in, you know, circumcision, keeping of certain holy days, special days, and certain dietary laws. And when Paul would not say, when he would, he would not say, well, you can keep this circumcision or, or these other things in as part of your gospel. When he said, you can't do that, that was the offense. And for Paul to escape persecution, all you have to do is leave those in there in place and agree with the Judaizers that were trying to add things to the atonement. So same with us. It, it's a different era. We don't necessarily deal with people maybe that are bringing in circumcision or different uh, maybe dietary laws. Some maybe, but for the most part, we're, we're dealing with people that are bringing in all kind of other things, depending on what denomination they're in. They might be bringing in baptism. They might be bringing in free will as the ground of their salvation. Uh, conditions, mainly, that's it, just generically conditions of all sorts. God has done all he can do. Now you do this. And then there are conditions one through however many. And when we say no conditions, it's Christ alone. His death is sufficient. It's effectual. It's accomplished. It's finished. When we stick with that, that's the offense. They won't receive us. Paul said in Galatians uh, 6.14 that God forbid that I should glory in anything else besides one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he went on further and he said, and to the, who the world is crucified to me and me to them. In other words, I'm not receiving them. They're not receiving me. God has brought me to this point where I have left my former Adam, state in Adam. I have left the religion of my family, if you're in disagreement with the religion of your family. And I'm in a new state now. And I cannot live with myself if I compromise that gospel that was part of the means of my salvation. If I compromise that, I'll be in with the rest of the fools that I used to be a part of. What else are we leaving or being separated from when we, we come out of Adam and we change states? We're leaving the law that we were in bondage to before. When we come out of the law that we were married to before, as it says in Romans 7, to be married to Christ. And we know, uh, you can turn to Galatians 3 right now. We'll look at a few verses there. James Guyo brought these up a few weeks back. We won't spend too much time there. We'll just probably read these texts to connect to our point. We know parents, historically parents have uh, set up tutors that would teach their children. They get up to a certain age that they're mature and they wouldn't need that tutor anymore. And then they could go out in their life and do their own thing. And this is... And what we're seeing here, Galatians 3, verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So right away, there was not a law given for life. Some Reformed people will go to the Garden of Eden and they'll look at the threat that God gave to Adam, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. 
And they'll take that and say, well, there's a condition there of if Adam, if you can keep this law, then you'll have life. That condition was not given there. God just said, when you eat, you're going to die. That was a decree of God. It was sure to happen. And it did happen. And we'll unwrap that when we, uh, we're going to go through a series sometime soon on election. We'll cover that in the Covenant of Works, which Reformed people call Covenant of Works. And we'll unpack that there when we have more time. But uh, verse 22 says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Jew, Gentile, everybody without exception. We just looked at Romans 3 a couple weeks back. The four universal nuns, none good, none righteous, none that understandeth, none that approach God at all. Nobody. All under sin. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under law, shut up unto the faith which should come afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster. Some versions use the word tutor or trainer to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law was given to show, hey, you can't keep this. Here's the law. You can't keep any of it. That's what it was used for, to show sin, show that you can't keep it. That's what the whole Old Covenant was about. Billions of gallons of blood over thousands of years were spilt, saying that, that this sacrificial system is incomplete. You can't keep the law. These sacrifices are continue to be offered. None of them are taken away sin until Christ comes. The gospel, you see Christ as the one who was born under the law, born without sin, kept the law, died under the penalty of the law once and for all time. He's the final and only sacrifice for his people. And he satisfied the law. He fulfilled it and satisfied it. And that is the heart of the gospel, the propitiation of sin, how that he satisfied God's law and justice. So that law is used temporarily to teach something, and that something is you can't keep it. You never have been able to keep it. You never will keep it. Therefore, you have to look outside of yourself, pass the law to somebody that took that law and did the right thing with it, made it honorable and magnified it by fulfilling it and satisfying it. But at verse 25, but after the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. That's it. No more schoolmaster. I don't know why people have taken this verse out of their Bible and they continue to want to use the schoolmaster to keep us under bondage of the law and guilt and fear. But a lot of people have taken verse 25 out of the scripture. Verse 26, for or because you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That is, if you are one who lives by faith, the just shall live by faith. Only the justified shall live by faith. Faith in God's grace is the rule of life. The law is no longer the rule. The law's been satisfied. Christ followed the rules. And one of his goals was is to fulfill and satisfy the law. And he has brought his children under grace and through faith. And they live by faith, looking to Christ to satisfy the law. Go back to chapter 2 of Galatians. 
this is important to understand that we don't take the law and handle the law, the subject of the law, in an antinomian way. The first thing that we do is we want to make sure that we understand that grace is not just no law. Because some people think that. They think grace is just no law. Some of those that have a habit of doing this thing, walking down front in the aisle, they're mostly Baptist and non-denominational. Um, easy believism, they call it. Some people call this the, the grace movement, hyper-grace. It's not free and sovereign grace like we have, like an effectual atonement. But they have divorced the gospel from the atonement that we hold to. And they have their own view of, of the atonement, which is universal and ineffectual unless and until you do something with it to make it work. And these people, they just say grace is no law. But we believe that grace is law satisfied. It's law satisfied. Look at uh, Galatians 2, 19. So this is the first idea we must have. We must honor the law with this idea of law satisfied. Paul speaking to the church of Galatia, he says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Dead for no reason, in other words. In other words, he wait, if, if there is a law, it's like he set up in the other text we read, if there's a law that could bring salvation, then Christ pretty much wasted his time. Why don't we just focus on pointing to that law? Go ahead and do that law. Christ wouldn't have died. Well, we've already been taught that nobody can keep the law. The law has to be satisfied by this very person, Christ, to be the one that didn't die in vain, that died effectually. So Christ came. He was born under the law, fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, he was sinless humanity. He, was, of course, was God in the flesh. And he died under the penalty of law. He fulfilled it, magnified it, satisfied it, and said it's finished. Satisfied that debt that his people owed to law and justice. No cheating, no injustice, no, no nothing out of balance. Everything was measured by God. The amount of wrath that it took to do that is what happened. And Christ said it's finished. The Father approved that by resurrecting him. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, proving that he did all that he needed to do to justify every one of his elect. And in every successive generation, that gospel comes to them, and he justifies his people by imputing righteousness to them, gives them life and faith to see that. And he used the law in an honorable way, to where nobody got to slide. The law is honored. He didn't die for a bunch of people that, are, that will end up in hell. Dishonoring the law in that case. He didn't do that. The father would not do that to his son. And he would not do that to people that are in hell. If, 
if their law and justice is paid for, then they wouldn't be in hell in the first place. So that's not going to happen at judgment where you see the vast majority of people going to hell because Christ died for them and they didn't do something with it. That's a, that's a blasphemous, unjust God because we know that God took the sin of a specific people and transferred that to Christ through imputation and charged it to Christ's account. And that is the language there of Scripture, how that he fulfilled the law, how that we, those people were crucified with him as he stood as their representative and substitute. So that's how we were crucified with him. He killed the old man. Those that are believers had an old state in Adam. That was what was put in Christ, and it's now dead. And by faith, we're to be reminded, the old man's dead. Quit acting like the old man. That's been bought and paid for. We're bought with price. We're no longer in bondage. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Sin doesn't have dominion over us anymore. We're not under law, we're under grace because of what Christ did to satisfy law and justice. So grace is not frustrated there. All right, our third point and final point is we are satisfied in his sufficiency. We are to be satisfied in his sufficiency, in who he is and what he's done. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it again. Our text back in Genesis 2, verse 25 says, And they were both naked, speaking of Adam, this is before the fall. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, this line here, this verse we just read, is talking about Adam and Eve before they sinned. They hadn't sinned yet. God set everything up, created Eve. There's Adam here, there in the garden. No clothes on, not ashamed. We know there was a change. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the first things they did was they got fig leaf aprons on them so that they could clothe their nakedness because they were all of a sudden ashamed. We know that's a form of self-righteousness. That's a picture of self-righteousness. They made their own covering. You know, later God killed an animal and took some furs and took their fig leaves away and made them a covering. Of course, that's a type and picture of the righteousness of Christ, that robe of righteousness. But what I want us to see is everything that we have in Christ is better than anything that we ever had in Adam, even before Adam fell. Adam, first of all, he was in a state where he was considered peccable. Or in other words, subject to change. He was not impeccable like Christ is. So he was in a peccable state. There was that potential for him to fall. God, of course, we know, decreed that fall. His purpose was for Adam to fall. God's purpose was for sin to come in the world. There was nothing that was going to stop God's purpose of sin coming in the world. Of course, the means used was the fall of Satan and then the fall of Adam and Eve. And in that sense, in that strict sense, we here teach that Adam didn't have a free will because God's decree superseded the free will, supposed free will of Adam. Now, Adam's will was different than our will at birth because Adam 
was born without sin. We are born into sin, which is kind of weird that you would think nowadays people in religion would act like they have a free will. When Adam, with a different will, unaffected by sin, still fell into sin. But they think they can do great things with their fallen free will. But Adam's state, it was bound to change because of God's decree. Now the elect who've been justified are in an unchangeable state of righteousness. It's not going to change. They're justified. Not only that, they're in a state now of the non-imputation of sin, which means sin can never be charged to their account. So in that sense, they are impeccable, just like Christ. When God looks at his people who are justified, he sees Christ because they have Christ's righteousness. They have changed from out of Adam into Christ. So the church is birthed out of that foundation of the person and work of Christ. We change families, new name. God looks at us, sees that robe of righteousness that Christ gave us. We're eternally secured, we're preserved in Christ alone. That threat that God gave to Adam, the day you eat that, we got no threats anymore. Because God accepts us only in Christ. We are alive now. We have legal life. We have justification. And we have spiritual life. We have regeneration of the spirit dwelling in us for the rest of our lives. So we're in, an un, again, an unchangeable state. Does that sound like his grace is sufficient when we talk like that? When the scripture talks like that? His grace is sufficient. You're going to add law to that somehow and improve on that? So Adam and Eve were, before the fall, were naked and not ashamed. Well, verses come to mind about shame, right? Uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God and the salvation of everyone that believes. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, just shall live by faith. Now, have you, have you been brought to a state where God has stripped you of all of your own righteousness? And you are naked of your own righteousness and now have the righteousness of Christ on you. And when you look at your own righteousness that you have, that's, that you're naked from now, you don't have it. Are you ashamed that you don't have your own personal righteousness? I'm not ashamed. I don't want it. I, I'm made to be ashamed of the righteousness that I thought I had in my own person. We know that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes, Romans 10.4. So we have, a, we have a righteousness we didn't have before, and it's outside of ourselves. It's been given to us, not by any merit of our own. So do we still want to dabble, or are we tempted to dabble? Are there people from outside trying to influence us, maybe that use some of our saying language that want us to dabble in this idea of, of personal righteousness and personal holiness. I see it all, every day on social media, in books and in magazines and on the radio. They're wanting to glory in your flesh by saying, look, yeah, Christ's death is, is good, but you've got to do this, that, and the other so that you may see the Lord. If you don't step it up, and improve day by day, become more holy, make your holiness grow, 
and sin less and less and less, you're not going to see God. This is what they say. And that's dabbling in a personal righteousness. We're not accepted in our own righteousness. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Do we balk at the idea of being accepted by God or in Christ because of his legally charged merit to our account? Do we, are we embarrassed of that? Are we ashamed of that? That's the offense of the cross. We better not be ashamed of that. That's the very point that we need to be strong in and say this is the only way of acceptance is by the righteousness of Christ. This is how we're justified. Or is it too just too unbelievable to be real. I mean, we can't see it. We can't see righteousness on an account. All we can do is hear what God says about it and believe God's words about it. But when you're out doing things, you know, religion, what they, they'll do things, they'll record them in their minds. Like that guy in Matthew 7, he said, but Lord, Lord, he started naming his stuff. I did this and your name did this. And your name. It's like the Pharisee looking at the, the tax collector said, I thank God I'm not like other men. You know, I do this and that and the other. Stuff that they could see. The religion of feeling. Using their senses. They walk by sight and not by faith. Walking by faith, God says, there's one way. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to charge it to Christ. I'm going to take his righteousness. I'm going to charge it to you. It's the only way. You can't see that happening. You just got to believe what I say about it. And it's not... Like it's not grounded or founded on anything. It's grounded in that death of what he did on the cross to satisfy law and justice. So that can happen. So some people would say this is not a fair method. It's this way of imputation. Just It just seems kind of unjust. In any of the imputations, there's three. There's Adam's sin to the whole human race. There's sin of the elect to Christ. And Christ's righteousness to the elect. And there will be people who are Sovereign Grace Reformed Calvinist people that wear that name that will say that's that's not fair. There's some other way. There's some other ground which kind of matches the Catholic idea that calls it legal fiction. Catholics, that's what they call imputed righteousness. Legal fiction. It's not real. Philippians 3.7 says, But whatsoever things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. But no... Rather, I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but dung, I count them crap, so that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not in Adam anymore, not in my parents' religion anymore. New family, new name, new state, in Christ. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, that tutor that I don't need anymore. But through faith of Christ, the righteousness of God by faith, which is what the gospel describes. So we leave our formal daddy Adam, our former religion, our former idolatry of personal self-righteousness. And we're stripped naked of all that and we're not ashamed. Because we have a new righteousness. The only righteousness that is real righteousness that God accepts. Turn to Psalm 103. This is in conclusion. I'll just read these few verses and we'll be done. A comforting text here. 
Psalm 103, starting in verse 6. Jehovah works righteousness and judgment for all who are pressed down. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and rich in mercy. He will not always chasten nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As Father pities his children, Jehovah pities those who fear him. Because he knows our form, he remembers that we are dust. What were we created from in our first Adam? The dust of the ground. Who was our friends in the dust? Bunch of worms, probably, right? They're in there. We're weak. We can't do anything out of hand. The Father set his affection on us, loved us, chose us, predestined us to be in Christ, to be crucified with him, to have our sins put away so that he can look upon us this way right here like he's talking. And he's rich in mercy. And that mercy is only and always in Christ. Any questions or comments?